Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. In the United States, February is Black History Month, and here at Pluto we're proud of the many books we've published in recent years on black history and political theory, as well as biographies of major literary and political figures, and guides to the history of the black studies discipline itself. So we thought in the context of Black History Month, it was only right to celebrate some of this work on the podcast. And to that end, we've gone through the Radicals in Conversation archive and pulled out some of the best bits from four different episodes released over the last couple of years, all of which explore the subject of black history in the US, albeit from different entry points. So firstly, Bill Mullen and Megan Williams discuss the evolution of the radical politics of James Baldwin as it was expressed in his writing and in his activism as a public intellectual. Our second extract features Farah Thompson and Jules Joanne Gleason, a contributor and editor respectively, to the Transgender Marxism Collection. And they're in conversation about race, gender and organising in contemporary America. Next, from an episode made in collaboration with the Black Autonomy podcast, Jonina Irvin speaks to Lorenzo Combar Irvin and William C. Anderson about black anarchism. And finally, Jordan Camp interviews Kianga Yamata-Taylor for The New Intellectuals, which was produced in collaboration with the People's Forum. And they talk about the history of black home ownership and her new book, Race for Profit. Until the end of February, Pluto's offering 30% off all the books in our Black History Month reading list, which you can browse on plutobooks.com, and you can check out the episode description for the direct link. If you're not already a subscriber to Radicals and Conversation, then please do subscribe, share the episode link online, and consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, so without further ado, this is Bill Mullen and Megan Williams from episode 26 of Radicals and Conversation, first broadcast in December 2019. We are here today to talk about Dr. Mullen and this amazing book that he has written on James Baldwin entitled James Baldwin Living in Fire. The book focuses on Baldwin's radical and queer politics and that is what we are going to be talking about today and I am very excited um, so my name is Megan Williams, and I am a PhD candidate in the American Studies Department at Purdue University with Dr. Mullen. I am equally a Black feminist Baldwin scholar as well as a Black feminist food studies scholar. Um, I came to James Baldwin as a master's student when I took Dr. Mullen's seminar on James Baldwin. And since then, I've been invested in analyzing, critiquing, and theorizing how James Baldwin molds and presents his female characters, and in what ways, if any, these shapings signal his continued efforts at employing and understanding feminist sensibilities. So yes, yeah, so I've talked a little bit about how I came to James Baldwin, and I just want to know how you came to James Baldwin and also how you came to write this biography with this particular social political vantage point, right, about Baldwin and his political persona. Well, first, thanks, Megan. Uh, it's, it's really wonderful to talk with you about James Baldwin, given uh, all the wonderful conversations we've had in the past. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I've been teaching Baldwin for a long time. I started going back to the 1980s when I was living and working in New York City, and I used to teach his essays on Harlem for my students because I thought they were this remarkable window onto a life that a lot of them were actually leading, mm -hmm. you know. They actually reminded me, my students, of, of young James Baldwin. So mm -hmm. they, were, they were city people from uptown. 
And then, you know, taught his work periodically for a long time. And then I really circled back to him, like a lot of people did, around the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that Baldwin's so, so good about, and has always been so, so good about, is pointing out the, the problems of police violence and police racism against black communities. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a thread in all of his work, da- right. dating back to his early earliest writings on Harlan especially. Once it was clear that that was going to be the focus of this, social, this new social protest movement, mm-hmm. it just felt like the time to start thinking about Baldwin again. Yeah. And of course, other people were doing the same. Both people who were leading the Black Lives Matter movement began to read and reread and cite Baldwin's writings on police violence and racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote that wonderful book, Between the World and Me, in which he really pays tribute to, to the fire next time. Mm-hmm. But that was also a response to something that he had endured at a very personal way, the loss of a, a friend who had been killed by the police in, mm-hmm. in, in Maryland. And because I'm also an activist in my life. Right. Uh, he was speaking to me in that regard, too. I mean, I, rem- you know, I was taking part in Black Lives Matter protests actually here at our campus at Purdue. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, you know, I wanted to teach a course on Baldwin to kind mm-hmm. of revisit all of his work. And at the same time, kind of by happenstance, I was invited to give a talk at, at the James Baldwin Conference in Paris, mm-hmm. uh, which is a wonderful gathering of scholars. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was preparing the class and preparing for that talk, I knew that I really wanted to revisit his whole life and write and write this book. And and that's how it that's how it kind of came to be. Okay, yeah, no. It's such a timely piece. And I think what you point out throughout the book about Baldwin's his political persona, right, in his literature, in his activism, but also um internally, mm. right? And how he's always thinking through his political persona is so timely because I remember at the beginning of Black Lives Matter, I changed my I changed my cover image on Facebook to his quote where he talks about how to be black and in America is to be in a in a constant state of rage, right? Because right? I just felt that at that right. moment and right. I think a lot of of people my age and people younger than me, right, living in this heightened, you know, what feels to us like this turbulent uh, social moment, Baldwin becomes really important in ways that we don't that we don't notice, yeah. right, and we don't notice that it's connected to this longer yeah. uh, political history, right, in Baldwin's life, which you point out for us in this book, and I'm very appreciative um, of that. Was it difficult to write this biography in this way? Were there things that you felt like you wanted to say and couldn't say or? Well, you know, I call it a political biography because I was really trying to focus in on the life of his political mind mm-hmm. from, mm-hmm. from from the earliest years to his later years. And so I, I was less interested in talking about his daily life and right. even ta- some things like friendships and social relationships, which right. oftentimes is what biographers are interested in. Right. I think it's an intellectual history of how he, how and why he became an American radical. Mm. And I call him a revolutionary mm-hmm. in my introduction to the book mm-hmm. because I see him like I see other great world figures like Asada Shakur and Franz Fanon and mm-hmm. uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, writers who always paid attention to the political process of the world around them. Right. And in, in Baldwin's case, 
I wanted to tell that story partly by showing how he was engaged not just with the world of the United States and its massive racial inequalities, mm -hmm. but I talk a lot about when he went to Paris in the 1950s, how the Algerian independence struggle right. really changed everything for him. He, right. be he began to think about the relationship of African-Americans at home mm -hmm. to the relationship of Arabs in the colonized world. Mm -hmm. That was a huge turning point for him. Mm -hmm. That's why by the late 1960s, he feels so, so much kinship with the Black Panther Party right. as they themselves are thinking about African-Americans as an oppressed national minority. Right. They end up going like to, to Algeria and trying to make connections with that movement. That, that's where James Baldwin went with mm -hmm. his life. And, and I was tracking that. And I, I was trying to track that by really paying close attention, not just to the, to the published work, but to, to some of the, the letters in his uh, archive at, at both Yale and the Schomburg, mm -hmm. which were very important to the writing of the book, where you see him actually working out, for example, he has these unpublished uh, drafts of manuscripts hmm. about the Algerian War in Paris, which no one has actually had a chance to read yet. Right. And for me, these were terribly important to making it clear to what extent he was constantly preoccupied with these questions of liberation struggle, mm -hmm. not, not just for African-Americans, but for other people. Yeah. So my method was to try to, to follow that, that line of his thinking. Similarly with the Palestinian question. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is that I feel like there were big parts of James Baldwin that just have not been looked at carefully enough. Right. And one of them was his support in the 1960s and the 1970s for Palestinian freedom. Right. And there was a constant thread in his work as well. And the fact that we in the United States haven't paid much attention to that for me was a significant oversight. Right. So when I call it a political biography, mm -hmm. I was trying to fill spaces that I thought were critical to understanding the whole of this man's life. Mm -hmm. And I think you do that, mm -hmm. right? Because I think in reading this text throughout, I just keep thinking about Baldwin as a Pan-Africanist, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In a way, and there's this moment where you talk about his... his um, his immersion in Pan-Africanism, yeah. right? And his his Pan-African ties. And I think that's really important because I think what Baldwin was trying to do and what you're articulating in this book is that when we think about liberation, we can't think about it on these, you know, micro, communal, mm -hmm. you know, small national levels, right? right? But we have to think about liberation as this global dream, right? right. As, this, as this global aspiration that we all have and we all have collectively, yeah. right? And it kind of reminds me, um, you know, because I'm always thinking about Baldwin's feminist sensibilities, yeah. right? But it really reminds me of the Kambahi River Collective and mm. thinking about, you know, when we think about liberation and when we think about who needs to be free, right? Thinking about the black woman as someone who, once she is free from her oppression, right, then yeah. everybody will be. Right. I think Baldwin is also trying to articulate that, right? Yeah. Like once America is free from these social systems of oppression, yeah. right, then it creates this example and it creates a context for how global freedom can take place. Yeah. So, I and it makes me think about, and you touched on this a little bit, but it makes me think about how you call Baldwin a literary revolutionary, mm. right? And I just kind of want to ask you to tell us why is it important that we see Baldwin not just as a writer, not just as an American writer, a Black writer, right? But see him 
as a literary revolutionary. And part of the reason why I asked that question is because, you know, one of his close friends, Toni Morrison, also just passed away. Right. And she was always thinking about how she wanted people to identify her as a writer, right? right. And to identify her as more than just a writer of the American canon. And it's more than just a writer of the African-American canon, but to think of her more holistically, right? Yeah. And, and in a little more multidimensionally. Yeah. And I think in calling Baldwin a literary revolutionary that you're doing that work for him. Yeah. So yeah, why is it important that we think about well, Baldwin that way? I think of him as a revolutionary in several ways. Uh, one was, for example, uh, Giovanni's Room, which he publishes in mm. 1956. Yes. In the yes, middle yes, of yes. the Cold War, is an extraordinary gay novel, right? Yes. He helped kick down the door for so many writers who came after, who needed to tell these stories, right? Mm -hmm. well, that's just one example. By the early 1960s, because he's so strongly critical of the American government, and it's, it's what he thought of as its too slow response to civil rights, especially mm -hmm. after things like the Birmingham church bombing in 1963, four right. black girls are killed, and he starts writing really, really sharp public critiques of the American government, the Kennedy administration. Mm -hmm. He meets with Robert Kennedy, and he he and friends give him what for, and they say, you just don't get it, you know? Medgar Evers' uh, assassination in 1963, right. this great civil rights worker, is a devastating moment. As a response to that, he, the FBI puts him on its surveillance list, and mm -hmm. they start tracking him, and he knows they're tracking him. And he threatens to write a book exposing the FBI's surveillance techniques. Mm -hmm. He goes very public, Right at a moment mm -hmm. when a lot of people were afraid to confront the mm -hmm. FBI because mm -hmm. you know that's been some heavy stuff. Yeah, he he became one of the strongest public voices for talking about the way the American state was trying to repress dissidents. That's mm -hmm. what he saw himself as as a dissident. Right mm -hmm. in the late 1960s, when he becomes friends with Huey Newton and the Black Panther Party, he starts to call himself as he had before. He says, "You know, I'm a socialist. My approach to America is to think about." capitalist inequality, he called himself right. a Yankee Doodle socialist. Right. right. And, he said, and he said, we need a socialism for an indigenous socialism, he mm -hmm. called it, in this country that will take care of these massive inequalities of wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Well, these are the pieces of James Baldwin that I think sometimes have been left out of other, of other books. Yeah. But there's no question that he said, and he said this you know, at the end of his life, the only way to change things is to confront them. Right. And that means putting yourself on the line. It mm -hmm. means putting your, your words on the line to do it in a very public way and to be fearless. Mm -hmm. And if there's one other way in which I think James Baldwin is a, is a revolutionary example, he was absolutely fearless. There was nothing that could stop him from speaking and stop him from writing. And people like that are, are really rare. That was Bill Mullen and Megan Williams. Next up, we've got Farah Thompson and Jules Duran Gleason from episode 45. This was first broadcast in August 2021. I was going to ask Farah about your political journey, which you talk about in the chapter as well. You write about how without class consciousness, your work could have been more limited or would be much more limited. And I was just thinking, you know, how do you think your experience of going through life as trans has sort of enriched your understanding of class as well? Yeah, because um, I grew up in a context where as far as Black consciousness is concerned, I grew up under a shadow of Black nationalism. Mm -hmm. But it was a markedly different type of Black nationalism than, say, the early 1970s Pan-African movements, which were explicitly anti-imperialist. Not that, you know, people in my neighborhood under Black nationalism weren't anti-war to an extent, but 
I was raised on the verge of black nationalism where it was more of an aspirational capitalism. Mm-hmm. You know, you go around Crenshaw, for example. Back when the Magic Johnson Theater was actually called the Magic Johnson Theater and was actually owned by Magic Johnson himself, Magic Johnson came to be defined not just by his overcoming of HIV and AIDS through, you know, his own star status as a basketball player, but he was also supposed to be brought up as this idea of like how other black men in community could be as people who could be somehow super talented, but also super shrewd in business matters, you know, super smart. The point is that this was a black nationalism that, you know, it was able to problematize the narrative of Africa as being a monolith, you know? So in other words, I had some passing familiarity with the nuances of South Africa and Nigeria and other countries, but it wasn't necessarily a communist vision of things. And that's what I mean by saying, when I said that class consciousness really connected things together, because yes, obviously I've experienced things growing up, you know, the three strikes law did heavily affect Black communities. There are people who were arrested during the three strikes law in the 90s who are probably still in jail today, not to mention the legacy of the Reagan administration, how like it affected personally, you know, people within my family who struggle with mental illness. But I think class consciousness, what helped class consciousness make this a little bit less isolating for me was giving a sense of, I don't want to say hope, maybe like a broader connective tissue between these type of things. So that you could no longer be just a one issue type of person. It had to be a multifaceted type of thing. You could no longer just fight for one particular type of cause. You had to try to find community with other causes because of the ways in which they connect to yours. And I think that's where class consciousness especially helped me to try to connect to make those things. If I did not encounter Occupy in my own in Los Angeles County around the time, if I didn't watch the final days at Occupy Los Angeles, you know, it being broadcast on news television on one channel and then the next channel, a Victoria's Secret show with Kanye West and Jay-Z rapping alongside a bunch of models and seeing the dissonance in media, among other things, like I probably would still just be fighting a one issue cause but probably to my detriment. Hmm. Um, as for how being trans has helped affect that, um, I've known for a long time how much trans people had to struggle with poverty um, to the point where it's almost pathologized, where you know poverty can be synonymous with queerness and transness and vice versa. So the fact that I came out as trans when I came out, there are some people who expressed like a concern as if I was like going into some sort of abyss, where like. Here I am, this barely comfortable person in a man suit, and now I'm a trans woman, but I may be more happy, but I'm going to be tossed into this abyss of poverty from which I may never rise out of. But sometimes some people talk about that in terms of concern. Other times it's almost as if they're blaming you. Like, I could find some way to help this. I could find some way to try to cope with this, to deal with this. But I couldn't cope and deal with this because how deadening the experience of being a gendered um, person in America and capitalist society. It's so deadening. I think I would rather trade that type of insecurity of being my own true self than try to delude myself into thinking that maybe if I stayed in the closet for a little while longer, maybe if I tried to adjust to people's gender expectations of me as a Black man back in the day a long time ago, maybe I'll find some 
way to transcend that kind of pain. That never came for me. One thing which you say in the essay, which resonated with me, and I think you kind of mentioned earlier, there's the sense that like even in circles which are explicitly inclusive or want to be inclusive, that's kind of not the reality in the actual relationships or the actual experiences you have in those spaces. When I was growing up, what kept me in the closet for a long time was the idea that people are going to be maliciously, you know, bigoted towards you. When in reality, it's more something that can be done almost subconsciously. You know, people may say, you know, trans women are women, but I find that before you can even begin to talk about the theoretical thing, it's about like, even about stuff like, say, Stalin's national question, or even the final points of Leninist theory, you have to overcome, first overcome whatever visceral feelings you may have about particular persons and bodies. Like, I have to say that, you know, in my experiences, there's been a mix of good experiences where people have truly tried to go beyond, you know, this essentialism, where, like, you know, people want you to prove yourself to them, but not in a case of them being safe, not a case of me being a safe person, rather of me being, like, a youthful person, or at least being a person who's well-versed enough in, in theory so as to not make any strategic errors. But even that, I don't think you can rest upon these type of things. Like, okay, so we have a political line. We may have a political line. We may have a system of accountability. We may have ways of checking upon each other. All these are very great things. The work doesn't stop there. I think there seems to be almost an implicit type of wish of just simply being able to just prop up whatever type of format or frame there is and thinking that once you've erected it once, that's all you need to do. You just gotta, you just gotta like test it, you know? So like how people test the hardiness of certain materials by scratching a diamond against a pot or something, try to determine how hard it is. That's how people seem to treat theory in relations to organizing and working with the marginalized people to kind of be on the side of. But setting aside that this like, you know, can leave a lot to be desired, I think people had to understand that theory can also needs to evolve too. In a way, we almost all become revisionists, you know, eventually. We have to be because, you know, as much as we may be able to have a particular theory and test things out, we may find the world moving on. I think in regards to like some of the vulgar materialism that we see, it's like a group of people who can't seem to accept the world had moved on since 1929. <laughs> if not even before the original split, if not even before the original split between W.B. Du Bois and the Communist Party and the white-led Communist Party, not being down with the cause of slave abolition because of seeing slaves as being like in a very like adversarial relationship to right. workers. That, among other things, it feels like people just want to be able to filter those kinds of things out, and then you'll have a revolution. But I think there's point a cart before the horse. Right, like we just need to focus on one social division at a time, and then, <laughs> and then we're going to get somewhere. What seems to happen in, in the course of your essay is you're talking firstly about a certain type of, let's say, radical feminism, although I don't think it's only radical feminism that does this to people, but what you describe as this sort of fear of toxicity or fear of, you know, whatever, toxic manhood, which leaves you kind of like trying to silence or trying to like strike out things in this way, which is really just never going to be possible because the people you encounter have expectations. You know, they have expectations of men 
which then uh, you sort of get drawn into. And then like, yeah, by the end of the essay, you're kind of like, well, you know, now I need to be seen. And that's, uh, or now I want to be seen. I think that's what you say. <laughs> you say you want it. And that's what I feel transition offers so many people. It's like, you go through these years of saying like, oh, well, you're perceiving me as a man, but I'm trying to get rid of my socialization. I'm trying to get rid of my my Y chromosome, whatever uh, account you give of yourself. But like, that's ultimately for many people, that's never going to be enough. You can't just eliminate undesirable features of yourself and, and expect that to be a whole life. That's something which it seems like to me, transition is the only thing that can do that for so many people. And um, that's something I want to like celebrate. And that's something I want us to acknowledge. Right. I mean, like, you know, we see this now in the wake of the Olympics and like the obviously racist policing of particular bodies and stuff like that. And some people say it's disingenuous to say, oh, it's the trans panic that's causing these black women to be victimized. But like, how is that not connected? Like, no, in my particular case, for a long time, there have been circumstances of black women being like, demoralized and characterized in almost dehumanizing, masculizing ways. Like, you know, even Angela Davis talks about this. Like, some people might say, oh, well, you're just being a weirdo who's conflating black women and these men in dresses. I'm like, the entire fucking history of radical gay history is about this congruence, about these meetings and encounters between gay men and lesbians and drag queens and cross-dressers and so on. Like, you know, you can't neatly cleave off these parts without right. undermining the entire structure of these type of things. So no, it's not disingenuous to say that trans panic is leading these talented Black women to be victimized. At the same time, there is an aspect of Blackness that some people seem to want to almost brush over. Mm-hmm. This is part of why I'm particularly critical of Vogue and materialism is because of how it talks about race, where people now want to pretend, with a few selective readings of Adolf Reed or whoever, that, you know, mm-hmm. race is no longer a matter, that, oh, well, now that we've demonstrably proven that Obama <laughs> hasn't changed the world, that, ha- that Obama hasn't brought back this post-racial paradise, like, on one hand, you can problematize, okay, well, maybe there's a reason why the presidency didn't change everything. Maybe there's a reason why Guantanamo Bay is still in place, and maybe there's a reason why drone warfare is still in place, despite a black man being at the helm. But People seem to want to ignore those type of things and say, well, now we know that race is a big swindle. Race is a big swindle. People invented racism, which... So we can just ignore it. Yeah, yeah. Which, first of all, when people talk about a class inventing racism, first of all, this is ingenuous. There were Mm -hmm. racial distinctions before capitalism. It's just what's changed is how the motives of capitalism can utilize racism. I will say about Adolf Reed, I don't have many nice things to say about him. I will say, like, his essays from the 70s, like, Black Particularity Reconsidered especially, it's worth having in your system. It's worth reading. I feel like <laughs> if he's the right. only Black theorist you're reading, you're yeah. in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and I feel like that's exactly the instrumental use he's come to play for a lot of people. That was Farah Thompson and Jules Joanne Gleason. Our next extract features Lorenzo Combo Irvin and William C. Anderson. Asking the questions is Joe Nina Irvin. This is from episode 49, which was first broadcast in collaboration with the Black Autonomy podcast in December 2021. Lorenzo, why did you become an anarchist? How did you arrive at your radical ideals? Well, first of all, I had been a civil rights and later anti-war activist while I was in the service in the, in the mid-1960s on to my time in 69. But I became an anarchist after I was arrested for hijacking a plane to Cuba 
was brought back to the United States. And I met Martin Sostry. In that period, between when I left the United States in the early part of the year of 69, and later on, when I came back in late 69, I had been exposed to the reality of state socialism, both in Cuba, in Eastern Europe, and had seen what these societies were really like. And also, I had come to the stage where I had been looking for something to replace my personal political ideology other than state socialism, other than the Black Civil Rights Movement, or even Black Power. I'd been looking for something deeper than that. And so when I came back to the United States, I was brought back and placed in the Federal House of Detention in New York City. I met Martin Sostry, who was one of the best known political prisoners in the world. And he was uh, there in that facility suing the officials of the state prison system for violating, you know, the human rights of prisoners and also demanding that prisoners be given the same rights to read literature, black and radical literature, and that they have the same rights to, you know, if they're accused of something, they have to be given a, a hearing and the right to believe in whatever religion they believe in and so forth and so on. So we used to have daily discussions about politics. And so he started talking to me about anarchism. And at the time, I didn't have any clue what anarchism was. I, did, I, I knew it was something that didn't pertain to Black people, or so I thought. And he explained some things to me that opened my mind much broader, made me understand that anarchism wasn't just for white people, or wasn't just the European doctrine alone. And he also explained to me the tenets of radical forms of anarchism and brought me to where I am uh, today in terms of being a Black autonomous or revolutionary anarchist. Okay. So William Lorenzo became involved in Black anarchism in 1969, which was long before your time. But tell us, why did you become an anarchist? How did you get your radical ideals? The thing that made me start questioning and looking into anarchism was I was experiencing a lot of disillusionment with the left. And I was listening to a lot of the dialogue that was happening between different factions of the left and getting kind of tired of this kind of conventional leftism. And so I started exploring different aspects of the left that I hadn't really been familiar with to see what I was maybe uh, potentially missing. And I started looking into anarchism a bit more. But like Lorenzo had mentioned, I thought that it was just a white radicalism that was individualistic, that had no analysis of anything outside of destruction and, and, and chaos, uh, just for the hell of it. And I didn't really come across anyone or anything that challenged that notion and that idea of anarchism I had in my mind until I actually met the both of you. The first anarchist I'd actually ever read was Rudolf Rocker. I read the anarcho-syndicalism pamphlet, and I was interested in it. But the first time I really read about anarchism and had it appeal to me in the way that I felt made sense to me as a Black activist and organizer, I was reading Lorenzo. And it was uh, the conversation I had the first time that I met the both of you in Memphis um, some years back where I was really saying, OK, I think that this might be something 
that I need to look further into. And so after I initially met y'all and had that conversation at an organizer's workshop that you both came and spoke at, um, that sent me on the path to doing the reading myself and looking into alternative forms of socialism that thought outside of the state. So that was a whole journey for me in a similar way to the story that you just expressed around meeting Martin. It was meeting y'all that did it for me. So passing on that information to me was how it started. And that was how I started down the path to studying and embracing the politics of Black anarchism. Lorenzo, in Anarchism and the Black Revolution, you do spend some time talking about Black nationalism as an organizing principle. What do you believe are the benefits or limitations of Black nationalism? Well, I've always felt that it's important that Black people have an autonomous political tendency that deals with our conditions, oppression and servitude. That is important. And I'll give you the example that most Black people, when they think of fascism and all the appeals that have been made, all the organizing that's that's been made, the first thing they point to is genocide, that Black people have been subjected to or are being subjected to genocide. They don't say that they're talking about, as many of the white radicals do, just a question of some rights or something or other. They're talking about not just the quality of life, but the possibility of life. If people are being shot and killed in the street by the police, and so what's happening is not just violating someone's rights. They are subjecting them to genocide. This is part of an entire program on a long-term basis. So I think that Black nationalism, nationalism itself, not the political nationalism, but the ideas of nationalism as Black autonomy, yes, we are a distinct people. We are an oppressed people. Our labor created the, the capitalist system in this country and created the whole country of the United States. But we've not been allowed or have been prevented from fighting for our own freedom, part of by the white radicals who claim that we should follow behind them, that they have the answer and so forth. So I look at almost the black nationalists, depending on what tendencies we're talking about, because there are all kinds of tendencies. And I always make the distinction that there was a revolutionary black nationalism, and then you got bourgeois nationalism. And, you know, revolutionary nationalism like the Black Panther Party, they weren't trying to build a state. They were trying to destroy the state, destroy capitalism, not to resurrect it in another form. So we make this distinction between there is Black nationalism, but there is certain forms of Black nationalism that's more progressive than others. And that would require a deeper study and deeper analysis. But I think we can say that in this period, all that we have is a reactionary nationalism. That's basically all we have, a reactionary, opportunistic nationalism with these petty bourgeoisie forces related to the state, to the Democratic Party or the the Republicans, for that matter, whomever, even the ones picking up guns. They don't represent, like the Black Panther Party did, the quest to fight against fascism. They may be a fascist tendency. They may be a Black fascist tendency, for all we know. I mean, this is where we talk about reactionary politics of Black nationalism, as opposed to, like I said, the their revolutionary politics. Uh, William, in your book, Nation on No Map, you talk about this issue of African royalty and symbolism such as Wakanda in the film Black Panther. Why did you write about this? What point are you trying to make? There are several points I'm trying to make. A few of them are that there's this idea that 
Black America needs to return to this lost royalty and this lost inheritance. And this kind of quest for redemption will help us get out of the circumstances that we're in. But when you study Black history and you look at the slave trade and you gain some deeper insight, you see that not everything that existed prior to the slave trade was exactly ideal as well as the slave trade itself needs to be complicated in uh, the way that we understand it. This idea that Black people are a homogenous group that is all descended from kings and queens just isn't true. And I actually think that it feeds into a dangerous sort of romanticization of hierarchy and a lot of romanticization of wealth that I think reinforces a sort of black capitalism. So I was asking questions about this when I was writing the text. And ultimately, I wanted to push back against that idea because I think that there's something to be said about where we are now and where we could go in the future if we reject um, this idea that we are royalty fallen from grace or that we need wealth or monarchy or you know, aristocracy or these sorts of things to make us valuable as people. I don't think that we need those things to make us valuable or to free us. I think that actually a rejection and a overturning of those ideas is much more liberating than trying to seek freedom through them. That was Lorenzo Combo Irvin and William C. Anderson with Joe Nina Irvin. And lastly today, we've got Kiangia Yamata-Taylor and Jordan Camp, from episode one of the New Intellectual series, which was first broadcast in collaboration with the People's Forum in April 2020. So your work is about, you know, racial inequality, uh, housing uh, policy, and kind of transformations of the political economy in this post-World War II Mm -hmm. period. Um, Why is it so important in your view to understand the relationship or the roots of racial inequality in Uh, real estate practices? Um. There's lots of reasons. I think one, and I, you know, I write about these various aspects of this in the, in the book that immediately when African Americans uh, are freed from slavery, um, the first iteration of civil rights is written in 1866 in the 1866 Civil Rights Act. And there's an immediate joining of citizenship and property ownership. That essentially to be a citizen means that you have the right to um, buy and sell uh, property. And so what then has it meant for African-Americans to uh, consistently uh, be marginalized um, from this enterprise to uh, when access is opened up for it to be on, on predatory, discriminatory and Uh, unfair terms, um, it says something important about uh, the meaning of black citizenship um, in this country. And so in that sense, real estate is an important way, an important measurement um, of the meaning of black freedom and black citizenship uh, in the United States. Um, And so that's one aspect of it. I think related, in the 20th century, home ownership has been such a essential cornerstone uh, of American democracy and American uh, citizenship that 
black people have both aspired to be um, homeowners. And I think the marginalization from what homeownership means, both in terms of belonging, uh, of citizenship, but also uh, of this access and possession of this financial asset Mm -hmm. uh, for which so much of social mobility in our society is tied to, that it's also been a source of tremendous radicalization. Um, And I would argue that um, one of the reasons why there has been so little written about black homeowners, um, in history at least, I mean, there are all kinds of studies in political science and in sociology, but they often tend to be empirically based uh, studies that are looking at uh, uh, disparity between um, numbers of black homeowners compared to, to whites and, and that sort of thing. But I think in, in history, um, it's such a uh, disappointing story. There is no happy, I mean, there are so many civil rights stories where even if the, the promise of what these rights meant were unfulfilled, that there's still some kind of, you know, narrative arc bending towards justice. Right. Um, and in housing, it just doesn't exist. Right. It's like the Fair Housing Act is only passed, only passed because Martin Luther King is assassinated. It fails in Congress in 1965, in 1966, in 1967, it's on its way to failing again. And Lyndon Johnson literally rolls around in Martin Luther King's blood and begs the Congress to pass this legislation, which they do, but is completely toothless and has no meaningful mm-hmm. uh, enforcement mechanisms. And, and so fair housing is passed. There's a landmark civil rights case, uh, Jones versus Mayer, that uh, happens shortly thereafter. And then there's the passage of this HUD Act in 1968. And that's, you know, that's a kind of trifecta high point. But very quickly thereafter, you see the futility almost in, in one sense of it all, that segregation doesn't really change, that the inclusion of African-Americans into uh, the conventional real estate market doesn't function in the same way that the inclusion of white working class people in the 1940s and 1950s does. It doesn't produce a black middle class. Instead, it, it creates this uh, wave of foreclosures um, around the country. And so there's, there's no happy ending here. And so um, I think that's part of the reason why it's a story uh, that's not told. And we can see in the contemporary moment, you know, the, a few days ago, there was this blockbuster expose in Newsday, a Long Island Daily, about, you know, a three-year investigation into uh, racist real estate practices across Long Island. And it makes no ripple in like the, the you know, nonstop grist mill of cable news. There's no coming up for air to talk about this. And, you know, outside of Newsday, the New York Times ran a two-column little piece about it. But it's just like, yeah, there's housing discrimination. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just part of the fabric of um, the inequalities that we talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, poverty, housing, mm-hmm. you know, we just throw these words around. Yes. And um, I wanted to look more deeply uh, into that. And one of the, the interesting things, I think, for me, helped to crystallize why this is such an important point is Roy Wilkins, the 
uh, president of the NAACP, at one point in a congressional hearing is saying that, you know, I had always looked at jobs and education as the most important uh, aspects of the, the civil rights coalition. Like these are the two most important things we should be fighting around. And when I go out and talk to people, the main thing they want to talk about is housing. Mm -hmm. You know, the Kerner Commission, mm -hmm. one of the, they interview people in every city where there's a riot and the top explanation is substandard housing, followed by, you know, unemployment, followed by police brutality. And so for something that in the lives of ordinary black people is so important, we don't talk about it um, enough as a catalyst uh, of tremendous social upheaval uh, during this period. So that's part of what I wanted to do. So there's a complicated argument you make about post-war housing policy mm -hmm. being at the root of the urban uprisings mm -hmm. of the 1960s. And then in turn, that the development of these new housing policies are inconceivable mm -hmm. outside of being a response to those, those rebellions. Right. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, if you could say a little bit more about that. I mean, one of the arguments you make is that these policies served as forms of containment. Yes. Um, yeah. So why is it important to connect housing policy to the urban rebellions? There's a, a couple of things. I think um, one is there's a there's a little bit of a of a longer history um, to this, that finally it's the rebellions that become the last straw, uh, that forces the federal government to finally, um, act. But this question about what to do about housing is, is one that persists throughout the, uh, the post-World War II, um, period. So the U.S. has never had a plan around housing, right? The, the, the federal government only in the 1930s comes up with its first set of um, policies regarding um, housing. Uh, but still, there's such a mismatch between the need for housing and what the federal government is actually in a position uh, to provide, because there is an understanding that this is the domain of the private sector and that the invisible hand of the market and the mechanisms of supply and demand will produce enough housing. And it's consistently shown through this period that that's untrue. So there's always uh, a complete um, lack of uh, safe, sound, and affordable housing that is uh, available to people. Um, at the same time, the, the US government does begin to develop housing policies that um, are almost exclusively geared towards uh, white Americans. Um, so the US subsidizes the suburbanization of white people, white people begin to leave cities. And so black people are simultaneously migrating into American cities and they are then confronted with this lack of uh, safe and sound housing. There is housing available, um, but it's slum housing, it's substandard and dilapidated um, housing. And as black people are moving into the cities, their incomes are rising and it's the aftermath of the Second World War. There are the demands and the desires to be integrated into US society as full citizens, which means being homeowners. Right. Um, and so there are different pressures that are being applied on 
uh, the American state. The third one is uh, by the 1960s, the white housing market is becoming saturated. Um, and so, you know, there is a, an important kind of pioneering role that the FHA assumes for itself that perhaps we can develop an urban housing market. You know, black incomes are rising. There's housing available because white people are leaving. We can, you know, perhaps begin to uh, develop a small market around home ownership in the inner city. And so as early as 1954, the FHA um, develops an experimental uh, home ownership program for people who are located in uh, renewal areas. So spaces that uh, have been targeted for urban renewal um, practices. And, you know, this opens up an opportunity, but the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, uh, does not lend money. They just guarantee the loans that banks make. So you still need a lender and banks are still reluctant. Um, uh, reluctant, it's a nice, way to put it, they're still refusing to lend to African-Americans, which is why it finally uh, boils over into rebellion um, in the 1960s, because there simply is not enough uh, decent housing. But one thing that is important in terms of containment um, to understand is that even as the FHA is loosening its restrictions, is looking at these uh, issues in um, different ways, uh, it is always on the understanding that even if we allow for black home ownership, it will only be in the city. We're, mm -hmm. we're not interested yes. in having black people become homeowners in suburbs. And this is because the people, the institution that guarantees the loans of banks are deeply interested in this notion of property value mm -hmm. and the preservation yes. of property value and being in their minds, risk averse. And the presence of black people in uh, white neighborhoods is not risk averse behavior. It's very risky uh, behavior. Um, the FHA uh, has bought in completely to the eugenic driven notion that black people are inherently destructive to property values and should be contained unto them unto themselves. So you can be homeowners and We'll try to facilitate that process, but you can only be homeowners in deteriorating urban right. uh, communities. And so this is an idea that carries over into the, the new period because they are willing to jettison explicit redlining um, policies yes. and develop a black homeownership market as long as it is a black homeownership right. market. They don't want an integrated market because of the idea that integration means a collapse in property values. This has been a Black History Month special on radicals and conversation. You can find out more about our Black History Month reading list, which features dozens of books, all 30% off until the end of the month on plutobooks.com, or you can check out the podcast episode description for the direct link. We'll be back in March with another episode. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>